the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we'll talk with Jeffrey Dean. He's the author of Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. He's been working with teenagers for over 20 years. We'll talk with him in the 5 o'clock hour. Also today we're going to begin giving away tickets to Trey McLaughlin. Uh, He and his group are going to be at the Newmark Theater. That's coming up next month and uh, we'll be giving away tickets um, every day except for Wednesday. We'll double up on Friday. That's October 6th, 7.30 p.m. at the Newmark Theater. That's um, Trey McLaughlin and uh, Sounds of Zamar at, uh, at the Newmark Theater. More about that when we give those tickets away. By the way, we'll do the first uh, set of tickets right here in the first hour of the program. First, taking a look at some of the headlines uh, beginning from Friday. I wasn't here, of course, so I want to share some of those. A whistleblower complaint that reportedly involved allegations of the president making a troubling and unspecified promise to a foreign leader has triggered a standoff between the White House and Congress as both the acting director of national intelligence and intelligence community's top watchdog refused to share the details of the complaint with lawmakers and the president adamantly denied the accusations. Both the Washington Post and New York Times, citing anonymous sources, reported Thursday evening that at least part of the complaint involves Ukraine. It uh, was confirmed the report um, uh, at least did deal with that area, and it's developed since then. We'll bring you up to date momentarily. The Post, the Washington Post, also reported that a U.S. intelligence office filed a formal complaint in regard to the president's communication with the unnamed foreign leader. Acting Director of National Intelligence Joseph McGuire would not share details of it with lawmakers. Those lawmakers pressed Intelligence Community Inspector General Michael Atkinson for details during a closed meeting on Thursday uh, as testimony before the House Intelligence Committee was given. The Associated Press reported, though, that he would not discuss the substance of the complaint and did not. Well, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff voiced concerns about not having access to the information and warned Congress could use legal action or budgetary powers to leverage uh, to force the White House to open up about the complaint. Again, more to the story. We'll share that a bit later. The Trump administration is currently weighing whether to send more troops, including air defense units, to the Middle East to prevent possible conflict over last weekend's attack on two Saudi Arabian oil sites. Defense officials Uh, Say General Kenneth McKenzie, head of the U.S. Central Command, has requested more air defense units, but the White House hasn't yet approved the request. Uh, Additional Patriot uh, air defense batteries could help shore up the holes in Saudi Arabia's air defense. President Trump is expected to meet with his top national security officials at the White House uh, to make a decision on deploying additional troops soon after. U.S. officials have blamed Iran for Saturday's attack in Saudi Arabia. Uh, in their oil processing plant and another oil field just to the south. 
A federal judge in California on Thursday granted the Trump campaign's request to block a new law that requires presidential and gubernatorial candidates to release five years of tax returns to run for state primary elections. The law, signed by Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat in July, would have left the sitting president off the ballot in California's March 2020 primary unless he submitted his recent tax history by the 26th of November. The Los Angeles Times reported under the law, the president would still qualify for the state's general election ballot in November of 2020. Trump's legal victory in California came as he filed a lawsuit against his own accounting firm, Mazars USA and Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance in federal court on Thursday in an effort to prevent the release of his tax returns. The number of recorded lung illnesses related to vaping has now reached 530, but health officials are still searching for an exact cause. In an update provided uh, last week, the Centers for Disease Control said confirmed cases of illnesses have now been reported in 38 states and one U.S. territory, with two-thirds of the cases involving patients ages 18 to 34. The number of cases marks a sharp increase compared to last week's numbers when officials had tallied only 380 illnesses. Among the instances have also been seven deaths. All patients have reported using either an electronic cigarette or vaping device before falling ill, but no one uh, one product or ingredient has been linked to all of the illnesses. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is struggling to contain a growing firestorm after a series of images of him in blackface and brownface have surfaced amid a tough re-election battle. Three images surfaced since late Wednesday, the latest video uh, that shows him in the early 1990s in blackface. The scandal has damaged his reputation as a progressive champion of diversity and thrown his campaign into chaos ahead of the October 21st elections. He has apologized but stopped short of saying whether more photos or videos of him uh, existed. Trudeau's son of the late, the late uh, former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau blamed his place of privilege for his actions. It was the devil who apparently made him do it. According to CNBC, a federal judge has sided with the uh, Trump campaign's request. I already mentioned that. House Democrats on the Ways and Means Committee said Thursday that over 60 alleged hate groups, mostly socially conservative organizations, anti-immigration entities, and religious groups should be stripped of their tax-exempt status. According to the Washington Examiner, the groups are designated as hate groups by the Southern Poverty Law Center, a group that itself is controversial and whose founder was fired this year for misconduct. The SPLC is the biggest hate group of all, and yet Democrats are relying on it to destroy conservative institutions. And there's been a great deal of controversy over its list and what criterion constitute hate. Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Thursday unveiled her long-awaited plan to lower prescription drug prices, one of the top priorities for Democrats this year. The plan would allow the Secretary of Health and Human Services to negotiate the price of up to 250 drugs per year, and the lower prices would apply to people both with private insurance and those on Medicare. The plan is far-reaching and significantly left of center, which would likely make it very difficult to get passed through the Republican-controlled Senate. But there are still some concerns from progressives in the House that the plan does not go far enough. Now, the the negotiation uh, field would not be level in that there would be fines for failing to uh, accept the plan that's being offered by the federal government. One of the concerns about the legislation. President Trump and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg held a meeting at the White House to discuss Internet regulation. 
Mark is in Washington, D.C., meeting with policymakers to hear their concerns and talk about the future of Internet regulation. He also had a good constructive meeting with President Trump at the White House today, Facebook said in a statement on Thursday. Zuckerberg and Senator Josh Hawley also met Thursday to talk about tech regulation. Hawley said the Facebook head refused his demands to sell Instagram and WhatsApp, as well as to submit to independent audits on censorship. Democratic presidential candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren hired a Planned Parenthood lobbyist to a key role in her presidential campaign on Tuesday, just one day after Warren announced a plan that would end lobbying as we know it. The caller reports the Daily Caller, if not for double standards, she wouldn't have any. Students plan to skip school on Friday to fight uh, climate energy. They did so and disrupted uh, traffic in Washington, D.C. today. And Chicago Public Schools CEO Janice Jackson says the New York Times 1619 project, which is historically inaccurate, and a revisionist history will be taught in all city high schools. And the National Rifle Association names Jason Quimet to head the NRA Institute for Legislative Action. In an historic move, an alliance of Arab-Israeli parties recommended a prime ministerial candidate to President Reuven Rivlin for the first time in almost three decades, saying it uh, in consultations Sunday that it would support a bid by former Army Chief of Staff Benny Gantz to replace Benjamin Netanyahu. This was something of a blow. ABC News reported that Maverick politician uh, Avigdor Lieberman, head of the midsize uh, party that uh, really is the power broker, controls the final eight seats, making him the key power broker. But he announced Sunday that he isn't endorsing either candidate. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, we are going to talk with Jeffrey Dean, author of Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. As promised, we want to give away a pair of tickets to see Trey McLaughlin and The Sounds of Zamar. That's on Sunday, October 6th, 7.30 p.m. at the Newmark Theater on uh, Southwest Broadway. And we'd love to give our first pair of tickets away to caller number two. Caller number two, 800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. This is a great uh, gospel group. Um, They're known for their tight harmonies, uh, unique uh, presentations of, of gospel music in the vein of black gospel music. So that's coming up on October 6th. Uh, Trey McLaughlin and his group, The Sounds of Zamar, uh, October 6th, 800-845-2162, caller number two. We're continuing to wind our way through uh, some of the news stories of the day. 17 presidential candidates attended the Polk County Steak Fry as the event drew upwards of 12,000 attendees. This is the um, biggest steak fry in history, boasted Sean Bagnewiski, uh, Polk County chairman for the Democratic Party at the event, with a growing number of Democrat candidates increasingly critical of meat consumption. Many pointed out the hypocrisy caught the attention of the free beacon, reminding readers Andrew Yang said that he would modify Americans' diet over time by increasing the price of beef to the point where Americans would be, buy less of it. Senator Bernie Sanders and Mayor Pete Buttigieg are also in favor of adding a meat tax in order to decrease consumption. So it was a rather interesting and conspicuous um, event. President Trump heads into a three-day visit to the United Nations in New York City starting on Monday, facing questions over several issues, whether he sought help from Ukraine to damage potential 2020 presidential election opponent Joe Biden, growing tension with Iran and the U.S.-China uh, trade war, a weakened global economy, 
uh, stalled nuclear negotiations with North Korea and the future of Brexit. Well, Trump will host a summit and did uh, on religious freedom today. His speech will present uh, the U.S. as an alternative to authoritarianism and underline his commitment to upholding democracy and protecting religious freedom. Administration officials said on Friday during a briefing call, according to Axios, the president will not attend a U.N. meeting on Monday on climate change. Only he did attend the meeting, the U.N. meeting on climate change. On Tuesday, Ukrainian President um, Volod. Well, the president and 16 other world leaders will attend the U.N. General Assembly meeting on Sunday. The president addressed reports that a whistleblower complaint may have accused him of wrongdoing related to a July phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky and insisted that there was absolutely nothing wrong with the substance of that discussion. The president has been accused of asking Ukrainian leaders multiple times to work with Rudy Giuliani in investigating former Vice President Joe Biden's son and using military aid as leverage. Trump denied making any improper requests, but he did point the finger at Biden. And by the way, the president of Ukraine has denied that that's what happened on the phone as well. The Democratic presidential hopeful son, Hunter Biden, had been investigated related to business interests. In the past, Joe Biden has said the U.S. would withhold $1 billion in loan guarantees from Ukraine if the prosecutor was not fired. But it remains unclear if this was directly tied to his son's case. And by the way, the prosecutor was fired. Trump accused Biden of being dishonest and claiming that he never spoke to his son about his business dealings with the Ukrainian energy company, despite Hunter Biden telling the New Yorker that they had, in fact, spoken about it. In an interview, um, Maria Bartiromo on Sunday Morning Futures, California Representative Devin Nunez, the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, said the whistleblower's complaint will have unintended consequences and shine light on Joe Biden's own misconduct and ultimately end his 2020 campaign. Speculation at best. We'll see what happens next. Well, just hours after Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said her party's failure so far to impeach President Trump amounted to a major national scandal, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi appeared to relent on Sunday and warned that a whole new stage of investigation could be approaching because of the reported whistleblower complaint against the president. Pelosi, who has long resisted calls to impeach uh, Trump because the move would imperil the electability of moderate Democrats in the House, the whistleblower who alleged Trump acted improperly in his phone call with Ukraine. Ukrainian President Zelensky must be allowed to speak to Congress and the full whistleblower complaint must be provided. We learned today that the whistleblower was not present to overhear that conversation, uh, that phone conversation with the Ukrainian president. Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau worked to start putting last week's blackface scandal behind him and focused on policies he said he'd pursue if reelected. He made the statement that in 2001, when one of the pictures had been taken, that he had no idea that was racist in 2001. No idea. It was 2001. Uh, including um, he's uh, offering lowering cell phone costs and a middle class tax cut, according to reports. However, the scandal may have toppled his uh, lead in the polls. Trudeau apologized several times for the multiple images that emerged last week showing him. Well, you know, but pollster Frank Graves of ACOS. Uh, research told Reuters that polls have shifted and the gap between his campaign and the opposition conservatives has narrowed. Graves said he will release the poll numbers later this week, but told the news outlet that Trudeau's lead has all but evaporated overnight. Game of Thrones took home the coveted Emmy for Best Drama Series on Sunday night after being nominated in seven categories, including drama, directing, writing and acting. However, Fleabag, I have no idea. May have been the biggest surprise of the night. It won Best uh, Comedy Series, and the show's star, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, took home the Best Lead Actress in a Comedy Series Emmy, breaking Julia Louis-Dreyfus, her streak for Veep. She also won the Best Writing in a Comedy, 
Fleabag director Harry Bradbeer also took home Best Director. The Trump administration signed an asylum agreement on Friday with El Salvador, giving the U.S. the right to repatriate migrants who cross through El Salvador to reach the United States and who then request asylum here. Officials hope the agreement, along with a similar one signed with Guatemala over the summer, will change the incentives that have spurred this year's illegal immigrant surge at the border. And the United States is deploying military forces to the Middle East after the recent drone attacks on major oil sites in Saudi Arabia that administration um, officials have blamed on Iran. The president has approved the deployment of U.S. forces, which will be defensive in nature and primarily focused on air and missile defense. U.S. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper said at a news conference on Friday, answers reporters um, answering rather reporters questions about the deployment. General Joseph Dunford, Jr., chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, described the troop deployment as modest and not thousands. Hmm. Iran responded. The president there has warned American and other foreign forces to stay away from the region as Tehran uh, paraded long-range missiles uh, capable of reaching American bases. Hassan Rouhani said the presence of such troops in the Gulf has always brought pain and misery in a speech made at an annual military parade to commemorate the war with Iraq. Mr. Rouhani spoke in response to an announcement made by the U.S. on Friday that it was spent sending more troops to Saudi Arabia after an attack on Saudi oil facilities. And President Trump named two nominees for the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals on Friday, tapping a federal prosecutor and a conservative appellate lawyer for the West Coast Court. The nominees, Patrick Bumate and Lawrence Van Dyke, are likely to elicit strong opposition from Democrats. If confirmed, the pair would raise the number of Trump's Ninth Circuit appointees to nine with one other nominee pending or rather nomination. NPR reports that Walmart will stop selling electronic cigarettes at namesake stores and Sam's Club locations. Uh, The nation's largest retailer is responding to growing health concerns around vaping, especially among young people. The ridiculousness of the anti-vaping crusade, say critics, is supported by the fact that Walmart will continue to sell tobacco products that kill hundreds of thousands of people every year. And Chick-fil-A has more than doubled its annual sales since uh, uh, gay rights activists call for a boycott of the chicken chain restaurant after it was revealed nearly a decade ago that the company donated to organizations that oppose same-sex marriage. In 2018, the company had $10.5 billion in total sales, becoming the third largest chain in the nation behind Starbucks at $20.5 billion. Excuse me. And McDonald's at thirty eight point five billion. It was a 16.7 percent increase in sales from the year prior. And on this day in history, 1780, British spy John Ander is captured along with papers revealing Benedict Arnold's plot to surrender West Point to the British. And on this day in history, 1846, Neptune is identified as a planet by German astronomer Johann Gottfield Gall. And on this day in 1952, Senator Richard Nixon, Richard M. Nixon, salvages his vice presidential nomination by appearing on television from Los Angeles to refute allegations of improper campaign fundraising in what became known as the Checkers speech. And finally, on this day in 1987, Senator Joe Biden withdraws from the Democratic presidential race following questions about his use of borrowed quotations and the portrayal of his academic record. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through the day's news and some that straddles last week as well. Jeffrey Dean will join us in the 5 o'clock hour, Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, the follow-up on the whistleblower story, apparently the whistleblower who sparked the mounting controversy over the president's July phone call, this was back in July with Ukraine's president, didn't have firsthand knowledge of the conversation. A person familiar with the situation is now saying, even as the issue fuels impeachment calls from the Democrats, who had already called for impeachment, the source said it uh, said rather that it is uh, made clear in the complaint itself that the whistleblower did not have direct knowledge of the July phone call between the president and the Ukrainian president Zelensky. It's been learned that typically multiple U.S. officials are on such calls with the president, but this would indicate the whistleblower is not one of those people. It's unclear if the individual read a transcript of the call, heard about it in conversation, or learned it uh, in another way. Democrats, meanwhile, have seized on the allegations that the president pressured Zelensky to investigate Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden's family dealings, citing those claims to revive calls for impeachment. The president denied wrongdoing. The new uh, details, though, have fed into skepticism about the allegations from Trump allies in Congress, with some likening it to how Democrats rushed to call for Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's impeachment last week. Some Democrats backed off after The New York Times had to amend the explosive story on a new uh, college-era allegation of misconduct against him to make clear that the the alleged victim did not have any recollection of the alleged episode. Well, GOP Representative Chris Stewart of Utah likened the two situations and called for restraint regarding the whistleblower complaint. CNN first reported on the the questions about the whistleblower's direct knowledge of the communication with the Ukrainian leader. In spite of those questions, the complaint has resulted in a showdown with Congress after acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, refused to share details with lawmakers. Democrats are pressing for the release of documents related to the complaint. Biden on Monday tweeted, release the, the transcript of the call. Uh, says um, Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, who wrote a letter to a majority leader, to the majority leader Mitch McConnell on Monday. I write to urge that you and the Senate Republican majority take immediate action to stop President Trump from withholding an intelligence community whistleblower complaint that by law must be transmitted to Congress and to begin an investigation into the administration's handling of security assistance to Ukraine. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who had resisted calls for impeachment, as I mentioned earlier, uh, over other allegations of transmission Aggression against the president said Sunday that unless McGuire provides information about the whistleblower complaint to Congress, administration officials will be entering a grave new chapter of lawlessness, which will take us into a whole new stage of investigation. But in a letter last week, the general counsel for the office of the director of national intelligence, Jason uh, Klitenek, he wrote that the agency is protecting the whistleblower and argued the uh, the allegation does not meet the definition of urgent concern. He said the complaint concerned conduct from someone outside the intelligence community and did not relate to intelligence activity under the DNI's supervision. The inspector general for the intelligence community has clashed with the ODNI on the matter, however, and has advocated for the complaints released to Congress. Meanwhile, Republicans are trying to return focus to Biden. Trump allies have claimed Biden's son, Hunter, improperly benefited from business dealings in the Ukraine with energy company uh, Burisma Holdings as a member of its board and questioned whether his father, the one-time vice president, helped protect him by seeking to ouster the uh, prosecutor, Victor Shokin, who was looking into the company's um, uh, owner. Trump, in a Sunday night tweet, said the Ukrainian government backed him up by saying he did not pressure them during the phone call. In the same tweet, he said the real story was Biden pressuring Ukraine into firing Shokin, which he actually did. Now, he's saying it wasn't related to his son's activity, 
but again, that's up, uh, open to interpretation, I suppose. Hunter Biden was hired by Bursima in uh, April of 2014, two months after Ukraine's Russia-friendly president was ousted by protesters. And as his father was heavily involved in U.S. efforts to support the now a new pro-Western government and its pledge to fight corruption. The hiring of the younger Biden immediately raised concerns that the Ukrainian firm, whose owner was a political ally of the ousted president, was seeking to gain influence with the Obama administration. Two years later, Biden, as vice president, threatened to withhold $1 billion in loan guarantees from Ukraine unless Shokin was fired. Uh, doing what he is now accusing the president of having done. Shokin was accused by many in Ukraine and in the West of being soft on corruption, but he also had been leading an investigation into Bursima's owner. The very thing they're accusing President Trump of doing, Biden did, uh, Biden did Representative De- uh, Devin Nunez uh, told Fox and Friends. It was reported at the time that Biden uh, controversy back in April. The New York Times published a lengthy story on the matter in May, but the controversy uh, flew largely under the radar until now. While the heat is on Trump over whether he pressured Ukraine to investigate the Bidens, that firestorm has prompted multiple news outlets to revisit the original Biden controversy in order to provide context. We'll see how that goes. And New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced on Friday he's dropping out of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm not really sure why he was in it. Um, he had enough troubles in his own city and his popularity there had uh, plummeted somewhat. It ended his campaign after struggling to gain traction in the race. I feel like I contributed all I can to this primary election and it's clearly not my time, he said. That was during an appearance on MSNBC's Morning Joe. So I'm going to end my presidential campaign, continue my work as mayor of New York City, and I'm going to keep speaking up for working people, end quote. de Blasio entered the presidential race back in May, running as a proud progressive, but his campaign never caught fire. He qualified for the first two rounds of Democratic presidential debates, but has failed to make the cut for the others. According to Real Clear Politics, the average uh, de Blasio was polling in less than 1% nationally. The Democrat had recently hinted that he would end his long shot bid if he didn't qualify for the October debates. I'm going to do everything I know how to get them uh, to get into them, de Blasio said earlier this month, but he faced an extremely uphill climb to meet the debate threshold ahead of the October 1st qualifying deadline. President Trump mocked the mayor in a tweet on Friday. I won't repeat it. You can um, uh, you can guess. On his campaign's first day, de Blasio dived into an insult match with the president. He's a con artist. I know his tricks. I know his playbook, the mayor said. Trump tweeted in response at the time that de Blasio was considered the worst mayor in the U.S. The Republican president said he was a joke and so on. When de Blasio took office in 2014, he seemed briefly poised to become a leading voice for an emerging left wing in the Democratic Party. His central message was fighting income inequality, a theme he uh, hit in the video announcing his presidential uh, candidacy. There's plenty of money in this world. There's plenty of money in this uh, country. It's just in the wrong hands. Hmm. His enthusiasm faded among liberals during his first term, partly because of political missteps. Just this week, Hollywood comedian and lifetime New Yorker Billy Crystal called on the mayor to get out of the race. De Plasio, what are you doing in Iowa? You're going nowhere. Come back and clean up this city, Crystal said on Late Night with Stephen Colbert. Well, he did just that. U.S. District Judge Deborah uh, Chasenow ignored uh, binding Supreme Court precedent and issued an opinion dismissing Liberty Council's lawsuit seeking a preliminary and permanent injunction against Maryland's law prohibiting minors from receiving voluntary counseling from licensed professionals to reduce or eliminate unwanted same-sex attraction or gender confusion. 
Liberty Council will immediately appeal that decision to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. In Doyle versus Hogan, Liberty Council represents uh, Christopher Doyle, a licensed professional counselor in Virginia and Maryland. Doyle is challenging Maryland's Senate Bill 1028, which was signed into law by Maryland Governor Larry Hogan and went into effect on the 1st of October of 2018. Doyle counsels minors who voluntarily seek his help and are struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction, behaviors, and identity. Doyle's counseling is provided solely through speech, but it is uh, prohibited by Maryland's counseling ban because the state disapproves Doyle's viewpoint. In its decision, the direct, uh, the district court rather, ignored the Supreme Court's decision in National Institutes for Family and Life Advocates versus Bacara, which rejected the notion that states can single out a, uh, the speech of licensed professionals for lesser protection under the First Amendment. The district court relied upon the decisions in Pickup versus Brown and King versus Governor of New Jersey, both of which held counseling bans like Maryland's are permissible under the First Amendment because licensed professionals do not engage in fully protected speech when counseling clients. But in NIFLA, the Supreme Court specifically called out those decisions as incorrectly decided, reopening the door to constitutional challenges of therapy bans. The Maryland District Court ignored NIFLA's abrogation of Pickup and King and repeated their error by assigning less First Amendment protection to Doyle's counseling speech. Well, that case will... Um, as I mentioned, be appealed to the next level uh, court, and we'll continue to follow that story as to the outcome. Well, the recent attack in Saudi Arabian oil fields, uh, facilities rather, was approved by Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, but only on the condition that it be carried out in a way that made it possible to deny Iranian involvement. That's according to a U.S. official. Speaking on CBS News, Saudi Arabia on Wednesday displayed a wreckage of what it and said were Iranian cruise missiles and drones. The circuit boards uh, can be re- uh, reverse engineered to determine the exact route the uh, weapons flew. But U.S. officials said the most uh, condemning evidence is still unreleased satellite photos showing the Iranian Revolutionary Guard making preparations for the attack. Uh, at an airbase in southwestern Iran. From there, the weapons flew through Kuwaiti airspace some 400 miles to their targets in Saudi Arabia. The satellite photos were of no use in stopping the attack since their significance was not realized until after the fact. We were caught completely off guard, one U.S. official said. The Saudis showed grainy surveillance video of the incoming Iranian drones, but none of the actual detonations that one U.S. official described as a tidal wave of flame. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, in the second hour of today's program, we're going to uh, hear from Jeffrey Dean. He is the author of Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. The book is full of scripture and good, sound, solid advice to parents. He's been working with youth for uh, more than two decades, so we'll talk with him later in the next hour. Michael Schwartz, writing for... um, The Patriot Post had some interesting observations with regard to this whole Middle Eastern thing involving uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. He writes that if you've uh, filled your gas tank over the last week or so, you may have noticed the price per gallon is a bit higher. The simmering war between 
Uh, Shia Iran and Sunni Saudi Arabia is uh, presumed to be the cause of last week's attack on a major Saudi oil facility, an attack that dealt a significant short-term blow to the global oil industry and sent prices surging. Fortunately, thanks to our resurgent energy industry, this bump in prices is nothing like we experienced in the 1970s during the bad old days of OPEC sticker shock and gasoline rationing. He goes on to write, as evidence of Iran's guilt continues to trickle in despite the fraudulent claim that Iran-backed Yemeni uh, separatists uh, that they launched the strike, the pressure begins to mount on President Trump for more forceful response uh, than his cyber attack in response to the downing of an American drone earlier this year. Despite that earlier incident and the Iranian regime's decades-old hatred of America, the fact that, in the words of an anonymous U.S. official, we were caught completely off guard by the refinery attack strikes um, many as troubling. Mr. Trump has loudly uh, made clear he is reluctant to pursue the military option. And in the Middle East, adversaries respect only strength, opined the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. and Saudis have shown uh, they can't protect the oil fields and the next attack may hit the United Arab Emirates or Kuwait. While assuming Iran is indeed the culprit, by the way, that was end quote, assuming Iran is uh, indeed the culprit, hitting our Saudi friends served its interests well as a proxy for an attack on America. Not only did it disadvantage its rival for supremacy in the region, but it also propped up the oil prices on which its economy, along with those of antagonists Russia and Venezuela, depend. Yet war-weary Americans may be cheered by President President Trump's stance as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced after meeting the leadership of the United Arab Emirates, we are here to build out a coalition aimed at achieving peace and a peaceful resolution. That's my mission. That's what President Trump certainly wants me to work to achieve. And I hope that the Islamic Republic of Iran sees it that way, end quote. Well, included in that effort are European allies that will be called upon to help enforce the sanctions President Trump had in mind. And if the heating up of the Iran-Saudi Cold War wasn't enough to concern American interests, in the region. The results of Israel's second national election this year may bring more heartburn. It now appears that longtime Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who failed in his attempt to create a new coalition government after April's voting and called a new election, will be left with the same situation after his Likud party came far short of the winning majority the 120-seat Knesset. However, his chief rival, Blue and White Party leader Ben Gantz, uh, will be in the same boat, having also won 32 seats or thereabouts. Thus, the whole of Israel's foreign policy may teeter on the whim of a minor party leader with just nine seats keeping either likely coalition from gaining a majority. Israel's dilemma sends a reminder to our nation as it heads into its own national election, not uh, now less than 14 months away, that foreign policy may become a significant campaign issue. Donald Trump isn't the polished geopolitical leader that some prefer. Indeed, National Review's Kevin Williamson makes that point in noting that uh, Trump facilitates or rather vacillates between a kind of soft and notional non-interventionalism and B-movie posturing, end quote. But Trump also, um, uh, Trump's also not uh, pinning, uh, rather pining for the global citizenship his predecessor did and which his uh, 2020 opponents will likely aspire to as well. Keeping America great means keeping American interests at heart, however difficult that may be. In the Middle East, an interesting perspective from Michael Schwartz, again, writing for the Patriot Post.
Well, the Arab bloc of Israel's parliament abandoned its usual hands-off stance on Sunday and endorsed former military chief Benny Gantz for prime minister, potentially giving him the edge over hardline incumbent Benjamin Netanyahu. The historic move marked the first time in nearly three decades that the Arab parties backed a candidate for prime minister, reflecting their contempt for Netanyahu, who was accused of fomenting hatred of the the Arabs during his re-election campaign. Benny Gantz is not our cup of tea, said Arab lawmaker uh, Tibi, but we promised our constituents that we would do everything to topple Netanyahu, and the default here is recommending Benny Gantz, end quote. It will be up to Israeli President Reuven Rivlin to decide which candidate should be given the chance to form a coalition government and serve as prime minister, a usually pro forma task made uh, difficult this time by last week's deadlock parliamentary elections. Neither Gantz, the leader of the centrist Blue and White Party, nor Netanyahu, head of the conservative Likud movement, has a majority in the 120-seat Knesset, or 61 members. But with the backing of the Arab parties, Gantz gained a slight advantage. He could have as many as 57 backers compared to Netanyahu's 55. Maverick politician Lieberman, head of the mid-sized Yisrael uh, party, he controls the final eight seats, making him the key power broker. But he announced on Sunday that he isn't endorsing either candidate. Now, that may change, but the endorsements by the joint list, a block of four small Arab parties that controls 13 seats, marking a turning point in Israeli politics. Arab parties have traditionally refrained from endorsing a candidate for prime minister, and they have never sat in a coalition government, not wanting to be seen as legitimizing Israeli policies. Although many Israeli Arabs remain angry at Gantz for leading the military's devastating war against Gaza militants in 2014, their fury toward Netanyahu runs much deeper. Netanyahu's campaign repeatedly accused the Arabs of trying to steal the election, drawing accusations of racism and incitement. There's also deep-seated anger over a law passed by Netanyahu's government in 2018 that declared Israel to be the nation-state of the Jewish people. Arabs believe the law codifies discrimination. And though the Arab parties are still expected to stay out of Gantz's future government, their endorsement reflects a growing desire of Israel Israel's largest Arab minority to take a more active role in shaping the country. In an op-ed piece in the New York Times, um, uh, Ayman Oda, the leader of the joint list, another of the parties, argued that his move should end Netanyahu's political career and provide a watershed moment for Israel's Arab minority. If the center-left parties of Israel believe that Arab-Palestinian citizens have a place in this country, they must accept that we have a place in its politics, he wrote. There's no shared future without the full and equal participation of Arab-Palestinian citizens. Netanyahu reached, uh, reacted rather by saying, as we warned, the Arab parties that oppose Israel as a Jewish and democratic state and glorify terrorists recommended Gantz for prime minister. Well, the Arab party's decision does not guarantee Gantz will be the prime minister. The president usually appoints the candidate with the most supporters, but not necessarily. Rivlin has wide discretion. In last week's vote, blue and white won 33, while Likud took 31. The deciding factor looks to Lieberman, who is demanding a broad unity government with the two major parties that will be secular and exclude ultra-Orthodox ultra Jewish parties and Arabs. Oda said uh, he's planning to, on becoming opposition leader in the case of a unity government. As a leader of the largest party in opposition, he would be entitled to the position, which includes meeting with uh, visiting world leaders and access to sensitive security information. Rivlin hasn't indicated which way he's leading, but he said uh, he interpreted the will of the people as 
as yearning for a stable government. And there can't be a stable government without the two big parties, the 80-year-old president said. Last week's vote was Israel's second election in five months. Netanyahu was unable to form a coalition after April's balloting and calling a new election. He had hoped to secure a narrow majority of hardline and religious parties that would grant him immunity from prosecution on charges that could include bribery, breach of trust and fraud. But now that possibility appears to be off the table. Israeli law does not require a sitting premier to resign if indicted. But if he is charged, it's widely expected he will come under heavy pressure to step down. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. At the top of the hour, we've got news and traffic coming. In the second hour, we'll talk with Jeffrey Dean, Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely, among other things. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with the author of Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. Jeffrey Dean will be my guest. By the way, James Blend is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. In the first hour of the program, we gave away tickets to Trey McLaughlin. He's going to be at the Newmark Theater. It's a great uh, gospel group that has tight harmonies, great arrangements. We'll tell you more about that. But we'll be giving tickets away Tuesday, Thursday, and two on Friday. So listen up for your opportunity to win. Tomorrow will be in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, the Catholic, uh, Catholic hospital, we have learned, can be sued for refusing transgender hysterectomy. Now, that might be somewhat confusing if you don't follow the issue, but a Catholic hospital known as Dignity Health refused to perform a hysterectomy on a transgendered male, which means a female who lives as a male. As against um, Catholic moral teaching, the patient sued for discrimination, but the case was dismissed on the basis that the hospital was legally following It's faith principles. Alas, the Court of Appeals reversed reinstating the case as an active docket. Well, it's not altogether surprising, given the fact that we live in the 21st century. But Dignity Health's uh, faith-based policies require that the institution protect and preserve the bodily and functional integrity of patients and that the functional integrity of the patient may only be sacrificed to maintain the health or life of the patient when no other morally permissible means is available. Dignity Health also forbids any sterilization procedures as against Catholic moral teaching. Surgeries that would have the effect uh, or have that effect are permissible only to cure or alleviate a present and serious pathology. Obviously, the hysterectomy would render the transgendered patient sterile. But the uh, Court of Appeals ruled that under California law, this can um, uh, this can constitute illegal discrimination. Well, from the case Minton versus Dignity Health, the pleading alleges that um, uh, Mercy allows doctors to perform hysterectomies as treatment for other conditions, but refused to allow the doctor to perform the same procedure as treatment for Minton's gender dysphoria, a condition that is unique to transgender individuals. And this is not a disease condition; is it's more of a view, but denying a procedure as treatment for a condition that affects only transgender people supports an in, in, uh, inference, rather, that Dignity Health discriminated against Menton based on her gender identity. Well, this is true even if the denial was pursuant to a facially neutral policy. Well, in other words, a Catholic hospital can potentially be held accountable for refusing to violate Catholic dogma by removing a biological healthy organ, thereby sterilizing the patient as a treatment for a biologically non-pathological condition. And uh, there's this. After three days, the hospital offered to find Menton a referral to a hospital willing to perform the surgery. Uh, The court ruled that's nice, but too little too late. Well, in making those 
Uh, alternate facilities available three days later, the defendant undoubtedly substantially reduced the impact of the initial denial of access to the facilities and mitigated the damages to which Minton otherwise would have been entitled. However, the steps that were taken to rectify the denial in response to pressure from uh, the would-be patient from the media uh, did not undo the fact that the initial withholding of facilities was absolute, unqualified by an explanation that equivalent facilities would be provided at an alternative location. Well, the decision didn't arise in a legal or social vacuum. The California Supreme Court previously made it cl- very clear that the state law gives some um, very little about the free exercise of religion and health care when it comes to alleged discrimination against sexual minorities, leading to a surreal claim by the Court of Appeals that forcing the hospital to violate the institution's religious principles does not actually violate its freedom of religion. Upholding the claim um, does not compel Dignity Health to violate its religious principle if it can provide all persons with full and equal medical care at comparable facilities not subject to the same religious restrictions. If it cannot, and to the extent there is any compulsion, the Supreme Court, applying a strict scrutiny analysis, held that any burden that uh, UNRWA Act places on the exercise of religion is justified by California's compelling interest in ensuring full and equal access to medical treatment. If Catholic hospitals can be required to remove healthy organs, why can't they also be compelled to perform an abortion or assisted suicide if a law is written declaring such refusals to be unlawful discrimination? Well, Catholic medicine is on the social justice gibbet. Uh, hospitals, uh, nursing, uh, nursing homes, other institutions may soon be forced to choose between ceasing being Catholic or closing or selling hospitals to maintain religious integrity. If hospitals shut their doors because of modern secularists' authoritarian instance, insistence on uh, forcing faith-based medical facilities to violate their beliefs, will anti-religious freedom zealots fill in the gap? Postscript, in Nova Scotia, the government is forcing a previously exempt Catholic hospital to allow euthanasia within its facilities. And it marches on. Google is bracing for another landmark privacy decision at the European Union's top court five years after a right-to-be-forgotten ruling forced it to delete links to personal information on request. The EU Court of Justice is going to rule tomorrow on the U.S. uh, giant's follow-up fight with a French data protection regulator over whether the right should apply globally and uh, where to draw the line between privacy and freedom of speech. The Alphabet Inc. unit is uh, challenging the French authorities' order to remove on-demand links on all of its platforms across the world if they lead to websites that contain out-of-date or false information that could unfairly harm a person's reputation. Judges may also clarify what links can stay online in the public interest. For Google, the fate of the Internet is at stake. The 2014 ruling already forces it to offer up different uh, research results in Europe than the rest of the world. France uh, France says that Google should purge those results globally. Google's backers in the case, which include uh, press freedom groups, warn that this could allow authoritarian regimes to censor the entire Internet by extending to the world their decision on what can be made public. The case highlights the continuing conflict between national laws and the Internet, which does not respect national boundaries. Richard Crumbly, who's a uh, lawyer at um, Link Letters in London, a ruling applying to the right to be forgotten worldwide would create a serious clash with U.S. concepts of freedom of speech in other states. I might also try to suppress search results on a global basis, reducing Google's search engine to a list of the um, inoffensive. The EU court is hard to... um, 
Second guess, the initial ruling shocked Google by rejecting its argument that the search engine was merely a neutral pathway for serving up information. The decision effectively left it to Google to decide if a link that someone asked to be deleted contained something that was no longer relevant. Well, this could have far-reaching implications uh, here at home as well as across the globe. Well, World Vision has flipped the script on child sponsorship. Almost 1,000 uh, children in rural Guatemala gained sponsors this month from a mega church in southern Indiana. But in this case, it was the indigenous children in need of uh, who pondered the photos of smiling faces and chose, well, one they felt a connection with. And it was the adult donors in the United States who nervously waited, wondering who would pick them. Well, the role reversal, which World Vision is calling Chosen, is the first significant change to the Christian humanitarian organization's bread and butter method of engaging Christians with the world's need for uh, and equipping of children to live healthier and safer lives. As World Vision explains, it's a simple yet powerful switch to child sponsorship. Chosen starts with people here in the U.S. signing up to be chosen and getting their picture taken. That photo is sent to a community where World Vision works to be displayed with the pictures of other potential sponsors. The community gathers for a celebration where the kids choose their sponsors. Soon thereafter, sponsors will receive a picture of the child holding that photo and a note letting them know about the child and what made the child choose them. It's an interesting flip for World Vision. Up next, Jeffrey Dean, Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, from the Internet and social media to interaction with friends, teenagers are encouraged to pursue what feels good over what is good. Well, in Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely, my next guest, Jeffrey Dean, a family and teenage culture expert with more than 25 years in ministry and counseling experience, offers the advice readers need to help their teens thrive today while setting a solid foundation for the future. In a world where suicide is spiking among young people between the ages of 10 and 17, where pornography is becoming the norm for 64% of young people, he offers a biblically-based message of hope and encouragement for parents in the trenches. He um, is a popular author, pastor, motivational leader. Jeffrey Dean has spoken to over 4 million people at churches, universities, schools, prisons, and conferences. In 1993, he began Jeffrey Dean Ministries with a mission to help parents and teens know and grow in Christ. He hosts a podcast for parents addressing issues teens face and is a frequent guest on nationally syndicated radio programs. He and his wife, Amy, they have two daughters. They reside in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, and he joins us today to talk about his um, latest book, Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. Jeffrey Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, it is an honor to be with you today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I appreciate the subtitle of the book because it gives hope to parents and observers of teenagers who are very concerned how to help your child honor God and live wisely. It presumes that it's possible for both of those things, in fact, to be the case. Well, we really love the title, the subtitle as well. You know, subtitles, you know, are just so tricky to just nail and to really, I think, bring in a reader and help them really grasp what a book's about. And so we thought a lot about that one. And I, I think you're right. I'm so glad you agree. That's what we went <laughs> with. But we really want to offer hope and help the parents and to remind them that whether you're a kid on the honor row or on meth or somewhere in the middle, hey, God has a plan for you, for your family, for your kids. 
your kid's situation is of no surprise to him. He's in it with you. And that's why throughout the book, we really pack biblical truth and just a lot of scripture to help parents understand. It really begins with your walk with God. To be the parent that your kid wants you to be, more importantly, who God's created you to be, really begins with your walk with the Lord. And that's why I start at the first chapter challenging parents to be all in when it comes to their desire to want to know God and want to live for Him more. That's so, you know, then as they relate to teens and teen culture and parenting, their walk with the Lord just so shapes where they go in parenting and their kids are so watching them and they're leaving there. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. Well, the book is filled with hope, but it also gives really good instruction. And I think that's what parents need, both of those things in one volume. In the introduction of the book, you begin by writing about a 15-year-old girl uh, that you knew several years ago. Um, she was someone who was involved in youth group. She was uh, a believer and so on. But the new culture encourages kids to take pictures of themselves without their clothes on. And she had engaged in that, which just gives you a picture of how fragile it can be for some young people in knowing where to draw the line or being willing to draw the line, even if they appear to be uh, very involved in um, in following Christ. And that's their heart's desire. Yeah, we start with that story. It's a tough place to start. My mama read that story and she said, well, Jeff, that's a really tough story to begin with. And and it is for every parent who will read this book. It's it's a tough place to begin, but it's an important one. Mm-hmm. And this is why I, I don't write trying to pull on the heartstrings of parents. I'm not trying to create an emotional moment to to draw them into the book. I want parents to know from one, from moment one. Listen, it, it doesn't matter if your kid's doing really good in school or has dropped out of school. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether they've started dating or not. Uh, all those things are just a part of teen life, and everyone's story is different. But reality is what does matter for this book is that every parent needs to know this. Satan hates your kids, and he's going to work every day to steal, kill, and destroy, as Jesus warned in John 10, 10. And so every kid is just one choice away from consequence, only one turn from tragedy. And the girl at the opening of this book that we talk about who sexted and sent nude pictures to her boyfriend, and her world came crashing down fast, and we want every parent to know that your kids need it in it. They need you in it every day with them. They're counting on you. They're looking to you. Influence is so important because every day Satan wants to destroy your family, wants to bring down your kids in the process. Well, you begin the book with a very sobering story, but I think for every parent who cares about their son or daughter, it something else rises up in them, that resolve to do something to prevent uh, that from happening, or if something like that or other things have already uh, started to take place, to do something about it, and you equip them to do that. You um, also, in the introduction, you offer five critical foundational truths uh, for parents to embrace, the first of which is you are the most influential person in your teen's life. And some parents might roll their eyes thinking, well, that that was long <laughs> ago. Yeah, I get that. You know, we really right, or or I, with my publisher, really took the perspective of wanting parents to understand student culture. And so many of our conversations, the stories, obviously, much of our research is is hands-on. I walk the halls of public schools. I'm in detention centers. I hang out with students. I just returned last night from a student conference in Texas. And so what I say in the book really is a reflection of conversations I've had from kids. And so when I tell a parent, hey, you're the greatest influence in your kid's life, you're right. I may get a little, little bit of eye rolling, and I may meet those parents who say, yeah, but you don't, you've not met my kid. And I get that. But I base what I write on this book on the reality that, hey, we're in the trenches with students week after week all across America at our events. And students tell me overwhelmingly, mom and dad, number one influence in my life, far more than any pop star, rock star, jock star. Your kids are looking to you for your lead. So the question isn't, do you influence? The question is, what is that influence? 
And in this book, I talk about how you can use your influence to position your your to position biblical truth and, and godly guidance to help your teens be all that God's created them to be. And I really. I really love the journey we've taken with this book. I think mm-hmm. it's going to be a great benefit families. Yeah. And I should also mention there are stories that I think will really help uh, parents to understand what you're, uh, what you're saying. You first discuss what it means to study the culture in which your teens are, are living, that parents really need to have their eyes opened. They need to be armed and alert. Uh, talk a little bit about why it's important and how a parent can better understand the culture that their teen lives in, particularly if their teen isn't necessarily explaining all of that to them directly. Yeah, culture is shaping our kids in so many ways. You know, the simplicity simplicity of just the, the life change in all of our lives with the cell phone and just all that that brings into life and family life. And our kids are learning life in many ways by the device they hold in their hands. And every kid is only one click away from a challenge online, and uh, as we just talked about sexting, using their devices. And so I, I challenge parents throughout the pages of this book that you've got to remain a student of the culture. It doesn't mean you have to know every lyric to every song, you have to watch every movie, and stay tuned to MTV Friday nights. Uh, it does mean this, though, that culture in some way is shaping your kid, and they need to look to you for moral, for spiritual, for relational guidance. They need you to help combat the lies and really help them see that Satan is so good masquerading lies and that he uh, is just working overtime to deceive our kids into believing that what culture says is cool. And so I want parents to know throughout this book that regardless of what is culture cool, regardless of what happens to be the flavor of the day, uh, God's word is truth and God's word always trumps culture's cool. And that's why we have countless scripture in this book to help parents understand that God's Word can shape your teen in so many ways that culture can't. And I will tell you this, Georgine, so many students that we meet with, uh, they, they see through the facade. They see through uh, just the lack of truth that this world in so many deceptive ways is working to just take them down a, a spiral into nowhere. And so they see past that. They know fluff for what it is. And so that's why I get right to it in this book, because mm-hmm. parents – your kid, your kid needs to see you as approachable. Your kid needs to see you as unshockable, and they're looking to you. And so remaining a student of the culture helps you better understand what it is that you need to target, how you need to discipline, and how you need to lead biblically. So important. In one of your chapters titled Five Questions Your Teen Needs to Answer, you encourage parents to approach their children with these five critical pa- uh, questions. What are those questions and why are they so important for a parent to gauge where their son or daughter happens to be? Yeah, I talk in this chapter, uh, I love this chapter. It just might be my favorite chapter. It's chapter three in the book. And uh, again, by just walking through how we have seen culturally uh, that there's just been this failure on part of families nationally uh, to not be in the Word consistently, to not have a personal devotional time. And so I, I tackle these five critical questions that our kids need to answer. Number one, do I believe the Bible is the absolute truth of God? Number two, do I believe Christianity is distinct from other religions? Number three, do I believe there are multiple ways to get to heaven? I'm asked that one all the time by students. Number mm-hmm. four, do I believe that all other religions are false? And Number five, do I believe in the deity of Jesus? And I really wrap these questions around the truth we find in Joshua 1, where scriptures say, be strong, be courageous, be careful to obey all that my servant Moses gave you. That scripture goes on to say, keep this book of the law always on your lips and meditate on it day and night to be careful to do everything written in it. 
And I talk to parents about the critical that, listen, the more you're in the Word, the more you meditate on the Word, the more your family's in the Word, the more the Word is before them. I truly believe that God's going to use that. Well, as Romans 1 says, that we may know about God, that it would be plain to us, and that what God has for us since the creation of the world, the beginning of time, invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, that all of this could be seen and clearly understood so that people are without excuse when it comes to salvation. And I really put this at the beginning of the book so that parents would understand of all the challenges and privileges you have, there is none greater than leading your kids spiritually. You set the spiritual temperature in your home. Your kids have very deep questions about their spiritual lives. And who else better to help lead them than mom and dad in that journey to understanding who God is, that they're created for meaning and purpose, and that all that begins in a relationship with his son. Absolutely. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Jeffrey Dean. He is a popular author, pastor, and motivational leader. Uh, He began Jeffrey Dean Ministries in 1993. We'll continue our conversation on raising successful teens in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Jeffrey Dean, who has written a very impressive, practical, and biblically centered book, Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. Uh, the book is uh, published by Multnomah and currently available. And if you are a grandparent or a parent raising teens, this is a great resource to help you navigate the uh, sometimes troubled waters of popular culture. Now, let me ask you, if you've posed the questions that you mentioned in our last segment to your teen and they answer uh, in a way that is troubling, what's the first step for, for parents in addressing their child's lack of faith or understanding of Scripture or regard for who Jesus is? Yeah, I think it's a great question because I think on some level all families could potentially struggle with this. Kids may not necessarily believe what mom and dad believe, and we have, as we talked earlier, a culture working ever so hard, driven by the enemy, to sway our kids to believe otherwise about God and His truth. And that's why we talk a lot from stages all over America, but specifically in this book, about just the power of prioritizing time in the Word, of being in the Word with your kids of setting the word before them. Second Timothy 3 says all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. I remind parents that there is no worldly success that can replace what God's Word can do for your kids. So to answer your question, if you're not in the Bible, there's a strong possibility your kids aren't in the Bible. If you're not having consistent devotional time as a family, there's a strong possibility that your kids aren't even spending time at all during the day thinking about spiritual matters. And so it could be that you answer these questions for your kids, and they don't like the answer. They don't understand the answer, or they choose not to accept the answer. But we can't parent based upon how we think our kids are going to respond. We've got to stay the course spiritually. So time in the Word, time in prayer, spending time with our family, whether it be at the dinner table or a personal devotional time. We usually have our in our home on Sunday nights. I got back from a conference just last night in Texas, and before we went to bed, hey, we sat in the living room as a family, and we talked and we prayed. And even if it's just little moments, mm-hmm. those little nuggets of moments are so good and so powerful. I know for my kids and to build confidence in them of who mom and dad is, who's got what God's word can do in their lives. And so I, I just challenge every parent listening, start where you are. Look for moments. Don't feel like you have to answer all the questions. And even if you don't have all the answers, to say, hey, we're going to be a family that prays together, spends time in the word together. It's so important for building confident kids in the word. And we were talking earlier about 
the importance of parents to understand the culture in order to understand their teens and what they're facing and that they need to be unshockable. Um, how do you keep the lines of communication open? You write about the critical role of father and mother, and each of them plays a unique and significant role in the life of the family. But how do you keep those lines of communication open uh, if you are attempting to be a parent who is not shockable <laughs> but wants to um, uh, to hear from their sons and daughters? You know, Job 4 4 reminds us that our words can be so uplifting when we have a child who is struggling or who is questioning their sexuality or spirituality, relationships, or purpose. Job 4 reminds us that your words have comforted those who fail and you have strengthened those who could not stand. And so I just remind parents throughout the pages of this book of what it means to continually communicating truth, continually communicating God's word. We've talked about that a lot mm-hmm. already, and it sounds like, you know, that I'm just I'm just hitting repeat on my on my on my music dial, but it's it's so important, and that's why I spend time and again on every page really of this of this book talking about spiritual significance and how we shape our kids and how our life example can shape their life choices. And so uh, King Solomon, he wrote about the power of our words in Proverbs 16 when he said, gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to soul, and healing to the body. He said a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a settling of silver. I know in my life, I have seen, Georgine, the power of my words with my two daughters. I have two teen daughters. I don't just write about them. They're living in my home. I know the power of my words are so important. So parents looking for moments of opportunity to love on your kids by the words you use is so important, especially if you have a kid who doesn't embrace or believe what you believe about God and his word. You write chapters on what some of the more uh, thorny issues in households all across the country. Navigating our media-driven world. You have a chapter on setting healthy boundaries for cell phone usage. What to do about pornography. And the statistics are staggering uh, for young people and their exposure to it and sometimes addiction to it. Uh, and talking with them about sex and dating, how to choose friends and so on. Uh, these are major challenges. And again, the answer is always the same. We go to Scripture because that's the right answer to everything. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the challenge that parents have in just navigating um, and, and being exposed to these areas that can be very uncomfortable for a parent when they're dealing with their own sons and daughters. Yeah, well, you, you've hit it right on the head. The porn industry is a $3 billion industry, and I meet teens almost weekly on the road who are struggling with the thick of pornography, who have questions about dating, who are questioning their own sexuality, and who are dealing with a same-sex attraction struggle. And you're, you're absolutely right. These, these are big issues. And I know just because I write about them and just because I attach a scripture to a page on that topic doesn't mean it's going to make the issue less challenging in your home. But we do find to be, well, I guess so powerful for kids today is a parent who is willing to go there with their kid. And I mm-hmm. can't stress that enough for all of your listeners, that, that you're the parent willing to be the one who engages. You're the parent willing to have these conversations. I had a daddy tell me, and I included his story in the book. He told me at an event last year, he said, you know, Jeffrey, I, I talked with my son when he was 12 about sex, and I congratulated him. And I said, well, how old is your son now? And he said, he's 17. And I said, have you talked with him since? And he said, No. And so five years have journeyed since that first initial conversation. And I, I tell fathers and moms everywhere, listen, almost daily, your kid, if, particularly if he is in his teen years, is thinking about sex on some level and in some way. And so you've got to be that parent 
that's willing to have those talks, plural, not the talk, those talks. Mm-hmm. You, as I mentioned earlier, you've got to be that parent willing to be approachable, willing to be unshockable, willing to talk about your life, your struggles, your guilt. Because every father who reads this book or who doesn't read this book, every father listening tonight, do you understand the struggles you had as a teen boy in your mind? And potentially you understand some of those struggles still exist today. And so one of the greatest assets we have as parents is our life history, our challenges, our regrets, how all of this works into our relationship with God. And so authenticity, really, authenticity is the word of the day when it comes to communicating God's truth to our kids, letting them see us as relatable, because once they see us as trustworthy, more times than not, they see us as that nugget of value and influence in their lives that they're so desperate for. I love your chapter on the top 10 questions teens are asking. It helps prepare parents for the kinds yeah. of things that they're thinking and how to kind of gauge their conversation. And I also love the chapter on helping your teen identify his or her purpose. Many are rudderless and have no notion that their lives have value and purpose. Um, talk a little bit about both of those things, because I think that helps parents to engage with their sons and daughters. Yeah, you could imagine in teen ministry, we are asked a plethora of questions from students of all mm-hmm. ages, from all walks of life, really of all corners of the planet. And so in Chapter 16, the top 10 questions teens are asking, I really wanted to get very specific and technical and helping parents understand that your kid needs answers. Whether it be, hey, am I perfect enough? Or will mom and dad's marriage make it? Or the question of, if God loves me, why does he allow bad things to happen in my life? We're asked that question quite consistently, questions about the LGBTQ community, and just on and on, secret struggles. If I'm good, will I go to heaven? You know, that, that chapter on questions is such an important chapter in the book. Of course, every yes. chapter I believe is an important one. It's just proof that our, that, our kids have, that our kids have questions, and they're looking for answers, and they're looking for answers that don't necessarily just make them feel good, but tell them what they need to hear. Contrary to what many in culture might believe, our kids just aren't looking for the quick fix, not just looking for the quick and easy. Our kids really want truth. This is a very driven generation. It's a very passionate generation. It's a social justice generation. And so fluff answers don't connect with them. They want truth. So that's why I included in this book, here are 10 big questions mm-hmm. your kid needs you to answer, even if they're not asking them. And that really leads to chapter 17, the, the chapter about purpose. Every student on planet Earth, really every person on planet Earth at one point or the other asks the question, why am I here? What is my purpose? Jeremiah 29, 11, what a beautiful answer to that, that God has given you a plan and a hope and a future. Many people have that verse memorized, but many people don't have verse 12 memorized. They know that God says in Jeremiah 29, 11, I have a plan to prosper you and not to harm you and give you a hope in the future. I'm often asked by kids, okay, how do I get that plan? How do I get that purpose? Well, it sent me pursuing the answer to that question. Verse 12 in Jeremiah 29 answers that question. God says, if you will seek me with all your heart, all your heart, there's the key right there. And really raising successful teens, my new for parents. It's about not just culture and sex and dating and pornography, but it's about teaching parents to live that pursued life so then they can direct their student to live the same. Well, it is a great book. I would recommend it to parents. Again, the title is Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. Jeffrey Dean, thank you for the book. Thank you for your continued commitment to serving young people. And I really appreciate having you here today. Georgina, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Once again, the book is published by Multnomah, available wherever books are sold. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with a professor from Corbin University. Timothy Anderson is the author of Into His Presence, A Theology of Intimacy with God. Looking forward to having Professor Anderson in studio. We're also going to talk with Phil Vischer. He is uh, establishing a new Veggie Tales episode, returning to old school. New Children's Bible is also in the the offing, and it is back to its Christ-centered origins. On Wednesday, I'm going to be off with Dan Rice as he's uh, undergoing a medical procedure. On Thursday, John Pollard will be my guest. He's the author of Chester A. Arthur. You might have forgotten who Chester A. Arthur was. Well, he was a president for a period of time. The Accidental President is the subtitle of this Regnery history book. He'll join us on Thursday. We're also going to talk with Victor Alvarez. Conquest 2019 took place just a couple of weeks ago. We're going to get a wrap-up in what happens next with this ministry reaching out in our community. So Pastor Alvarez will be my guest on that program as well. Well, Duke University's student government has denied the Christian organization Young Life official a status as a student group on campus, citing its policy on sexuality. The decision by the Duke Student Government Senate on uh, last Wednesday came with ongoing clashes nationwide between religious student groups and colleges and universities that have added more robust non-discrimination policies. Young Life, like many evangelical groups, regards same-sex relations as outside of the biblical uh, norm. Its policy forbids non-celibate LGBTQ staff or volunteers from holding positions in the organization. Well, the student newspaper, the Duke Chronicle, reported on Thursday of last week that the student government Senate unanimously turned down official recognition for the Young Life chapter because it appears to violate a guideline that every Duke student group include a non-discrimination statement in its constitution. Young Life, which is based in Colorado Springs, is a 78-year-old organization with a mission to introduce adolescents to Christianity and to help them grow in their faith. It has chapters in middle schools, high schools, and on college campuses in all 50 states and more than 90 countries around the world. But the student government objected to a clause in Young Life's sexuality policy. After the student government was told the organization would not change its sexuality policy, it rejected the group. Well, the Young Life policy states, and I'm quoting, we do not in any way wish to exclude persons who engage in sexual misconduct or who practice a homosexual lifestyle from being recipients of ministry of God's grace grace and mercy as expressed in Jesus Christ. We do, however, believe that such persons are not to serve as a staff or volunteer member in the mission and the work of Young Life. So it's not just those with same-sex attraction, but those who are living outside the moral framework of Christianity. Over the past two decades, a number of colleges and universities have also attempted to exclude religious groups because of their position on sexuality, among them InterVarsity and business leaders in Christ. Greg Zhao, who's a senior assistant to the president at InterVarsity, said about 70 colleges and universities have attempted to exclude InterVarsity chapters over the years, in some cases because it bars LGBTQ employees, in others because its faith statement more generally violates school non-discrimination policies. In most cases, the issues are resolved, but others have ended up in court. InterVarsity, InterVarsity rather, is now suing the University of Iowa and Wayne State University. Most of the time, universities back down because it's a violation of students' First Amendment rights, Eric Baxter says. He's president and senior counsel for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. It's a law firm that defends religious freedom cases. Well, Duke, however, may be in a different category as a private institution. Private universities don't have the same obligations under the First Amendment's free exercise clause that a government entity does. Young Life did not immediately respond uh, to requests for comment whether or not they're going to move forward with a um, an effort to 
have that decision reversed through the courts. And more than a half million students from across the United States will participate in the sixth annual Bring Your Bible to School movement. That's Thursday, October 3rd. Though the First Amendment guarantees students the right to discuss their beliefs and read the Bible at school, Bring Your Bible to School Day provides a unified opportunity for young people to share their faith at school without fear. Throughout the day, students can share their experiences on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram using the hashtag Bring Your Bible. The Constitution allows students the religious freedom to bring their Bibles or other religious books to school and read them during free time. Students can even use the Bible in a class assignment if they do so in a way that is relevant to the subject matter and meets the requirements of the assignment. Students can voluntarily express their personal and religious beliefs to their classmates through a verbal or written expression if they follow the school policy and don't engage in these activities during classroom or instruction time. The First Amendment also guarantees students the right to pray individually or in groups on on school grounds, rather, during any non-instructional time. All students may express their opinions verbally or in writing before or after school, in between classes, during lunch or on the play field, according to the federal guidelines on prayer in public schools found on the Liberty Council's website. Well, the founder of that organization, Matt Staver, said that Liberty Council supports all students who exercise their constitutional right to bring their Bible to school on Bring Your Bible to School Day. And throughout the academic year, schools must remain neutral toward any expression of a religious viewpoint and provide equal access to students exercising their right to freedom of speech by praying or reading the Bible during non-instructional time. Well, Liberty Council is... uh, Uh, overseeing uh, this event as our other organizations as well. And again, that's coming up on Thursday, October 3rd. And if you'd like to report on um, your participation, you can go to Facebook, Twitter, on Instagram using the hashtag Bring Your Bible. Again, that's coming up on Thursday, October 3rd. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Professor Timothy Anderson. He is a professor at Corbin University. His book is titled Into His Presence, The Theology of Intimacy with God. And we're going to talk with Phil Vischer, who is uh, developing new resources in the Veggie Tales line. As you might recall, it was wrested from him some years back, and they started to take a little bit of a different turn. Well, they fell in popularity, but he has... Uh, restored them and now there's our new veggie tales episodes returning to as he put it old school he's also um, written a new children's bible in the veggie tales vein uh, we'll be talking with him about both of those efforts and how they're um, how they're taking off so looking forward to that also a reminder on thursday we'll talk with uh, pastor victor alvarez conquest 2019 was a large event in our community uh, that took place a few weeks ago, and this will be a wrap-up. It was a singular event, but it really represents an ongoing effort to, uh, to to share the gospel with those in our community. And we'll let you know, first of all, how uh, Conquest 2019 uh, went and what those efforts might be moving forward. So looking forward to that. That's coming up on Thursday, and we're also going to take a look at Chester Arthur, the accidental president, uh, John M. Pollard. In fact, last week was the anniversary of the Uh, death of the president he replaced, but we'll get into all of that on Thursday. Also, we'll continue to give away our Trey McLaughlin tickets. Um, He is coming to the Portland area, the Newmark Theater, and that's uh, coming up on Sunday, October 6th at the Newmark. Trey McLaughlin and the Sounds of Zamar will be there on that Sunday. We'll try to play some of their music uh, sometime during this week to give, if you're not familiar with the group, uh, they're known for their very tight harmonies, very creative um, uh, writing and so on, but it is a, a, a gospel group, and we'll tell you more about that as the week continues. And we're giving away Trey McLaughlin 
tickets. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.